Rocket Themestra. Rock in your world. On. Get ready to rock. Radio. This is the Pete Feenstra feature for Get Ready to Rock Radio. Welcome to the show. Tonight I'm speaking to Savoy Brown founder member Kim Simmons, the man who effectively led the second British blues invasion of the USA and paved the way for arena rock. Joe Bonamassa recently described him as one of the tastiest blues guitarists. He certainly is. Remarkably, Kim is leading the current Savoy Brown lineup of bassist Pat DeSalvo and drummer Garnet Mims into the band's 55th year with his 41st album, having played over 5,000 gigs. Uh, as the new album title suggests, he's not done with the blues yet. Welcome to the show, Kim. Yeah, thank you for having me uh, on the show. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Um, is the album title uh, to be regarded as conceptual in that it mirrors your undiminished enthusiasm to just carry on rocking then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is. You know, it's exactly what it says. You know, um, I got enamoured of uh, music. I got in enamoured of travelling. I got in enamoured of the romance of the blues. You know, when I was very, very young, 13 years old. Goodness. And uh, so... Uh, I'm just continuing the dream as much as I can. Absolutely. Now, uh, much like Borrowed Time, All Gone Wrong is a kind of a, ref a reflective song, so how much should we read into the lyrics re as regards your own life experiences then? Well, I, I think a lot, you know. Um, I've had a, a very blessed life, but, you know, I, I've survived cancer, I've survived a heart attack, you know, I, I'm as healthy as you can be, uh, but uh, not without, you know, uh, the usual health scares, and then the up and downs of life. You know, uh, uh, I have to say, my, my uh, personal life has been very uh, steady for, for decades now. But uh, you know, when I was younger and rock and roll, yeah. uh, <laughs> rock and roll stuff, uh, it was pretty crazy. Uh, so I think uh, you know, have to, uh, you know, you get to a certain age, uh, you are aware of your own mortality, and I think yeah. uh, it's. Um, I think that you react to it by wanting suddenly realize how important it is to you. And on this new album, some of the reflection did get into the song. Okay, yeah. Has your aim in your songwriting then always been to kind of tell a personal story with a universal theme so that other people can relate to it? Well, you try to do that. You know, you, you, you're trying to... Um, yeah, you're trying to make it universal. Uh, with blues, a lot of it is... It is anyway, uh, yeah. yeah. Is, it is, actually, it's, it's love. In, it's the love interest, you know. It's usually the man-woman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the woman, you know, you those trials and tribulations, that actually are universal. We all go through that. Uh, and then, uh, especially with the new album, I just try to extend it from there so uh, so that the subject matter is uh, is a little different from what you may have heard before. But partly thinking about that, this album's full of kind of contrasting styles and certainly different tone colours. Did, did you purposefully then aim for a kind of stylistic equilibrium? That's an interesting phrase, yeah. I, I, um, I just approached it uh, overlaying some guitars more and, you know, sometimes we have such a good uh, uh, chemistry, the band, as a three-piece, but sometimes I'm in the studio and I think I don't want I don't want to you know I, I want to just capture the three piece I want to capture the three piece and uh, uh, but then on this album I, I I didn't lock myself into that right it, it, uh, because it, when you play songs live 
you know, the it, it, it all comes, it doesn't matter what's really on the record. If it's a good song, the song cuts it through alive. Absolutely. And, you know, and the band uh, energy uh, makes up for everything else. So, so I was a little bit more open to adding rhythm guitars, which I did. Absolutely. I owned the guitars, you know. Now, when you started the band, you said your aim was to be a, a, a British version of a Chicago blues band. So, thinking about the past now, at what point did you think that Savoy Brown became a band in its own right? Well, I think that, you know, that would have been uh, very interesting, yeah, I think. Because you had this sudden explosion, didn't you, from being a, a club blues band to going to the States and then filling huge places and, and, and becoming a phenomenon in your own right. That's that's what I'm thinking, really. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and uh, it was it was the chemistry of the band members for certain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had you know Chris Yildon was a great front man. It's always good to have a great front man. But the but the band musicians were fantastic. You know, the the band that cracked the stick. Yes. Uh, Lonesome Dave, Roger, and Tony. Uh, so you know the contributions to everybody in in it. Uh, you know we, we were a trailblazing band, and one of the thing I'm very proud of is that uh, I took a blues band, which was what we were when we first went to the state. Yeah, right to the right to into the charts and right sort of uh, almost to the top. Certainly not top, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. top five or anything, but we were in the top forty, yeah. and uh, so that's something I'm very proud of. I would think that it was a gradual thing, and you got me thinking. It's a very good question because I actually think, even though we were sort of a you know a Chicago blues band when we started with John O'Leary and Harp, I think that was probably one of the best bands I've ever had. Hmm. And so right from the start, even though we were doing that, we weren't just parroting what we had heard. You know, we were bringing a, a brand new energy to the music, and uh, so then we did get into the point was the second album uh, and you know you could tell things were starting to happen there was an individuality going on Chris Yulden then started writing songs and that really gave us impetus yeah. and before you knew it uh, we had all the elements you know we had the songs performance uh, stage presence all those factors suddenly came in in about 1969. So that would and be the time, yeah. All the, all the factors together. Yeah. And without that, you can write all the songs you, you want, but without the performance, yeah. you're lost. You can perform all you want without the songs you're lost. And then you've got to sell it when you're on that stage. And I think all those elements came together in 69 with that particular band. And, uh, you know, we practiced, you know, Cracked the stage, and I just ran with the ball after that. Excellent. Now, coming more up to date, your your Witchy Feeling album hit uh, number one on the Billboard Blues charts, and also topped the iTunes Blues Top Albums charts. Um, and you more or less hit the summit in that respect. Did you then feel that you needed to be on an American label such as Quarto Valley Records because it's a, a Californian based that label? That was it, really. You know, there's always a language barrier. You know, we were with Roof Records for years. Oh, you know, oh. Thomas Roof, love him. You know, he's great. Uh, but you know, there's a, obviously the comfort factor when you have an American label, and because uh, there's you know there's logistics. You know, there's yeah. to figure out and there's artwork and everything. And uh, yeah. and uh, you know, all the simple things are so much easier 
when you're um, uh, when I'm living in America and it's an American label. So that that was really yeah. That's what I, that's what I thought. Uh, actually. Anyway, so um, down the years you've had countless lineups. People have always mentioned it. Uh, there's a great quote about that, which I'm sure you've heard a million times. Uh, the band switched lineups as often as Imelda Marcos changed their shoes. <laughs> 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 In fact, you've been you've been through sixty musicians or more. So my question would be: what Was John Mayall your mentor in that respect? Uh, John Mayall. Yeah, in terms of yeah, yeah, high turnover band personnel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if you, I, just, I, don't, I think, is that what you said? I mean, I'm a fan of John Mayles, I always have been, always will. Well, he's known for being a band leader and, and quite... Yes, he, he is, and I which don't is what you do. think I knew I was heading that way. Right. I, you know, when I started, it was forced on me, uh, the very first band, John O'Leary, left the band. He was the harmonica yeah. player in the very first lineup, and possibly my, one of my favourite Savoy Browns. And when he left, it was forced on me. Now I was, I remember, in fact, I looked at my diaries, and uh, I tried out another harmonica player to replace John. And I realised straight away that replacing someone with, with a, you know, same type of thing doesn't work. You know, yeah. once you're in that situation... You've got to move on. ...where the chemistry's been changed, it's yeah. best to look in a different direction, you know, which yeah. I did. I brought in a guitar player. So I, it was forced on me. It, little did I know, immediately, you know, I was now a band leader instead of part of a band. Yeah, you know, the it was my energy, I think, that was rolling the ball along from the very beginning. But I didn't think of it in that terms, you know. I, I didn't think that I was the band leader or anything like that or a... Or a what have you, yeah. uh, and, until that first time, and before I knew it, and that first band changed, and before I knew it, that ended up like in a mess, it changed again, and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, you're on that road. Okay, I, I need to play a track shortly, but I've got another qu quick question. Um, uh, looking back again, the band has shifted its focus, musical focus, from being a Chicago-influenced British blues band, to becoming more of an R&B sounding band and you're also talking psychedelia and, and boogie obviously um, also in the early 80s you became almost became a commercial rock band so do you see the last few albums then as square in the circle in terms of your overall career I think so, yeah, I'm going through a renaissance yeah, and uh, it's very enjoyable uh, I'm uh, putting the pieces together like that band in 69, you keep working at it and keep working at it yeah. The circle turns, you know, it's like everything else. Yeah. You know, you always go back to the fundamentals. You know, if you're a famous sportsman, you know, uh, you, you're always going back to fundamentals. I think that, uh, you know, that's what I've done in this case. You know, I've gone back to fundamentals. And I put, I put the pieces together. And uh, what happens, you put the pieces together and it rolls along. And invariably, because, uh, you, you know, you live in a quite a fast life being a musician, those pieces start separating and go apart. Somebody leaves the band or something happens, you yeah, know. Yeah, like. yeah. And uh, so all, all, all along, you're trying to put the pieces together or keep the pieces together. Yeah, and I'm so. happy to say that those pieces have come together nicely and a lot is to do with Pat and Garnet. I'm basically well, we'll, right. we'll talk about them a little bit later because they are an important part of, of what, the last 10 years of your right. of what your Savoy Brand lineup. But let's play a track now. This is called Feel like a gypsy.
Savoy Brown and Feel Like a Gypsy from the Ain't Done Yet album on Quarto Valley Records. Lovely touch and tone on that track, uh, Kim, and uh, almost a synthesis of Carlos Santana, JJ Kale, and Peter Green, perhaps. Uh, and I imagine that track must be a significant part of the current set list. When you're actually gigging, of course. <laughs> well, uh, we haven't played it no. though yet, but it's one of my favourites. As somebody else said, it sounds like The Doors. So, you, well, know, got, you know, you've mentioned a few influences there. I heard the Santana influence as soon yeah. as we put on, it wasn't meant to be that kind of song, but as soon as you put on congas, and as soon as you put well, on the cut, yeah. and perhaps with my style of guitar playing, which is, you know, immediately, that came to my mind. I thought, oh, this sounds Santana-ish, can't be bad. Yeah. Now, you've met Peter Green, of course, big influence on me in the past. Uh, somebody else you mentioned, J.D. Kale, the vocals. All these people are, of course, uh, I'm a huge fan of. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me. And The Doors as well. I've listened to The Doors in the old days. So it doesn't surprise me. Uh, unintentionally, that these influences are seen. And everybody has mentioned practically a lot of the tracks, you know, they'll mention somebody else. So it, this is very, very nice because these are people, you know, these are influences of mine that are coming out. But I still think that people say to me, you know, I can always tell, you know, uh, it's you. Guitar yeah, player. yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think that, you know, I think my personality is there. And, and I love the fact that even though I have my own personality, uh, you know, you can tell where I'm coming from. You, yeah. know, you can tell who I grew up listening to, uh, and uh, quite so. You know, that's kind of nice. Yeah. Now, in terms of your musical heritage, you said that you'd like to be regarded as, and I quote, the architect of the British blues movement of the '60s. But ironically enough, you probably couldn't have achieved that status without breaking big in America. And nowadays, it seems to be the reverse journey for a lot of Americans, rock blues bands, having to come to Europe to work. So. I suppose you have to go where the market is, really. Well, yeah, you know, obviously the architect of the blues is is, is hyperbole. But I actually did, uh, I re revisited Eight Superstitious from the very first album. And because uh, I wanted to do it in the live show, and occasionally I do it. I wanted to do something from the, the very first album. And I played you, just, uh, I I went back to the track that I got it from, the, the, the Howling Wolf track, A Superstitious. And I heard, and I, it shocked me because Hubert Sublin, the guitar player on uh, A Superstitious, plays it completely different. He plays it, the daddy da, 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 yeah, yeah. da, da, da. But when I got it, I straightened it out. Da, 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 da. And I noticed that everybody else played the straightened out version after that. So, you know, I, I did have a big influence on people. Oh, Even I, I think so. that get kind of lost in the mix. Yeah. So uh, that's where you get, you know, the architect of the blues. So I think those first, the very first band and the first album and my arrangements, you know, laid down a groundwork for a lot of stuff in the future. That being said, I've forgotten the, the, the rest yeah, of the yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, there is, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think I've been influential. Uh, certainly... Uh, that is something that I think that we're we're kind of trying to push now. You know that I think I've been Her heritage. That's why they I call you a heritage band. You know, not just you. Yeah, I think I've hid my talents. You know, under, uh. under a bushel or whatever the old biblical phrase is. You know, and I'm thinking, hey, you know, I've got to talk, speak up for myself. And 
And I think that uh, with the current renaissance, this is a good time to sort of talk it up. And then, of course, people can listen to it all and they can make up their own mind. You've also said about the band in the past that, and I quote, we were the real thing, Marshalls and Gibson guitars. We were very fresh, very new. People never heard this thick blues guitar before. So having once been cut an edge, Kim, did you ever have a problem in trying to emulate who you once were, uh, or did you always try and break new ground as you went along? Um, well, I think when you're younger, you want to be somebody else, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We all do, right? You know, it's peer pressure. You know, I want to sound like this because he's great. And I tried to sound like everybody else, but I couldn't do it. I think my technique or my personality or something stopped that. So right. it always came out as myself, which irritated me, you know, because I wanted to sound like Albert King. Or I wanted to sound like, you know, Eric Clapton, you know, somebody around me. And invariably, my own personality got in the way. And, and, uh, for, and for better or for worse, that's what happened. Uh, it... it uh, y you know, I remember what you said earlier on, you know, things have come full circle for me, because I'm realizing now that uh, the band is very popular in Germany, and, uh, you know, we played in the UK in in, in January. January yeah. Fantastic, yeah. you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, to and fro between the audience and the band, it was wonderful. Uh, and... Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting that things have picked up on the other side of the pond. And, and I have been trying to get over once a year. Uh, it can be difficult, but obviously this year, I, luckily, I was there in January, so maybe next year I'll come over, but we'll have to see. Given what you just said, is it, is it actually easier to cut an album now that your audience has kind of grown up with you and you don't really have to take it into new and unforeseen directions anymore? Well, there's that to a degree. Yes, I see what you're saying. It, it at this stage of my career, people are very nice to me. You know, they they don't take pot shots so much because once you've been around this long, you get respect, and that's really, really the nicest thing. I, I think you know to have respect. That's the biggest success you could possibly have. Um, it. Uh, I still trying to make a Savoy Brown album. Yeah. You have it has to be fresh, it has to be progressive, yeah. it has to be relevant. So there is pressure. There's no point in me playing uh, a shuffle like I did on the very first album, or maybe I've done throughout the career. You know, I'd still like to play shuffles, but I've got to be very careful I'm not repeating myself. Yeah. And it, at Savoy Brown Music is very demanding in that I dropped a song from the new album because it was—it sounded like too much like Motorhead. It was a terrific song. <laughs> by say to myself, but it's like, well, that's not Savoy Brown. And so, uh, you know, you try to push the envelope. You try to grow the. So I'm still trying to grow the music because I think that's what people expect from Savoy Brown. Well, they th don't want to get something I've done before. Thinking about that, um, I just want to throw another quote here, which is relevant to what you've just been saying, and it's this. I always call the 60s the classic period, the 70s the more commercial period, where the records were really selling heavily uh, on the Billboard charts, and the 80s were the lost period. Uh, in the 90s I was able to get the wheels back on, and the past 15 years or so have been the best. So which recent album then do you think kick-started this resurgence in your eyes? I think it might have been the Voodoo Moon yeah, album. Yeah. You know, that sort of, I brought in, I actually was, a, we were a three-piece, and then I brought in Joe Whiting, because I was writing some songs, and I thought I needed a, 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 a singer that could sing those songs better than me. And so I brought in Joe, and I think that that band 
and the songs I was writing, and suddenly the direction was the beginning. Okay. Of, of this new relationship. Do you ever then feel trapped in terms of your songwriting by the rock blues genre that you work in? I used to feel that way. I, thought, I used to think, wow, it's all been done. Uh -huh. You know, why do it anymore? And, and, and that was the worst thing I could have done because right. that led to a real fallow period for me. Uh, and once I got out of that, I realized it's infinite. You know, the blues is infinite. You just got to kind of, you've got to really stay open to ideas. You've got to listen to other people all the time. Because when, when you get, you know, if you get old in your head and think it's all been done, there's some point you're all going to come and, and do exactly what you were doing and, and yeah. be successful. So, yeah. you know, it's, um, it, which is happening all the time, you know. So it's infinite. The song ideas are infinite. The lyrics are infinite. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's a wonderful feeling, actually, that the, that blues music, you know, is is it, it's it's hasn't got a time limit. <laughs> I want to ask. I want to ask you something about that kind of fallow period you mentioned. If only for the fact that um, you put out rock and roll worries that kind of era. And you covered that, uh, well, you had commercial success with Smokey's Run To Me, which fe featured Ralph Mormon on lead vocals. Uh, and I think I'm right in saying, round about that time, you did some arena tours with Judas Priest, no less. So did you still include that song and the other one laid back in the arms of someone on that tour? Did I what? Did, did you play those songs, Run To Me and Lay Back In The Arms Of Someone, on that no, tour? No, we never played that on that tour. Because I think you'd have got bottled off, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. We, uh, you know, uh, I, it, it was, I was invited on because um, they, rem they uh, remembered me from, they used to come and see Savoy Brown, you know, in, in the yeah. V. And uh, so uh, influenced them uh, playing the flying beat. And so uh, they very kindly got me on the tour. I had a really great band. Uh, and it, but it was a difficult period for me. You know, I wasn't... It was uh, difficult for everyone at the time. I'm sorry? It was difficult for everybody at the time because the music completely changed, didn't it? Oh, was that okay? Uh, that well, it was, all, it was all corgs and funny haircuts and, you know, the kind of... Right. Roots that's music. Kind of, there was nowhere to go playing what we call roots music now. You know. But that's very, very true. And, 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 and videos. You know. I'm glad you reminded me of that because when I look back at the past, sometimes you just look at it from your own perspective, and and you look at your own failures. You know, and uh, or you see it uh, in, in in those kind of ways. You know. Yeah. And then, but like you said, then you bring up something else, and and it's good that. We're reminded that you don't get locked in your own head because it's, uh, as you say, about the 80s. You know, we were all going through it. Yeah. It's a time that that I shouldn't take personally because no, really, you shouldn't. I mean, especially in the UK, it was even worse. It was very, very tough. Kim, I want to play another track if I may, just so people can hear more of this great album. This is Savoy Brown and Devil's Highway. That was uh, Devil's Highway from the brand new Savoy Brown album called Ain't Done Yet on Quarto Valley Records. Um, back in 2009, you put out a compilation called Too Much of a Good Thing, which covered the 1992 to 2007 era. Um, in terms of your American fans, 
Is there a significant percentage of that audience that might not know the band from before that era? No, actually, every, you know, everybody knows the band from you know, from the 60s, right. Obi, you okay. know, and, and have followed the band uh, from the very early days, you know, so uh, not quite like it was in January in, uh, in the UK, where I had people come up to me that <laughs> were at the Nags Head in Battersea, wow. you know, wow. like, whoa! And a lot of people like that. You know, in, in the States, people were definitely, you know, in, in the audience today, there are people that were definitely there. The very first tour. And uh, friends of mine now that in my area that I've become friends with, you know, would, would go, you know, travel all over the place to see Subway. And when we first came over, because we were really groundbreaking. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it um, yeah the audience the, you know the audience is very very uh, knowledgeable over here they it's like everybody else like I bought Buddy Guy records when I was 13 years old I'm still buying Buddy Guy records and I think that I'm hoping that Savoy Brown and myself can somehow you know follow that role model in the sense that you know people bought records by Savoy Brown in the 60s they can still buy records now they can still see the band and that's the you know, important thing yeah. And, and there is continuity and uh, yeah. it's, uh, you know, yeah, I'm the last man standing here with the band, but still it's it's a history that I'm proud of and I think that it's, you know, I think it's a unique thing actually. It's my only band I've ever been in yeah, and, uh, and here I am. Um, <laughs> Ain't that yet? <laughs> you, also, you also nearly brushed the mainstream when you were mentioning the first episode of uh, Martin Scorsese's HBO series Vinyl, of course, that must have been a bit of a surprise. Yes, uh, that Pleasantly, was, pleasant uh, surprise. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th I think a lot of people, you know, that was, in, that was, but it was true, and that was very, very good. Uh, they, uh, the, the train, train, the song, Train yeah. to Nowhere showed up uh, on uh, some big series over here, it was, it, it was the main song. Uh, it, at the end of a series over here, and then in the Jimi Hendrix uh, documentary uh, movie, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, mm -hmm. the producer said to me he wanted a song that he figured that Jimmy would be listening to at that time period, and he figured he, he you know, he had to have been listening to Train to Nowhere. Oh, I think so. so. It was. In that song, in that movie as well, yeah. And it, yeah, I think it's Train to Nowhere. So, uh, so uh, a lot of people are uh, putting the pieces together. There's not a lot of video on the band. There's not a lot of history on the band uh, in terms of obviously. Well, you didn't uh, get you didn't get Woodstock like ten years after, for example. You know that that's one of the reasons. I know, I know. There's, there's been a, there was a lot of. Uh, and that you know, that applied to Family as well, and quite a few other bands. You know, who weren't even on it. So I mean, you know. Well, that's that's true, and that's why. Uh, you know, you've got to be a music aficionado. You've really got to dig into music. You mentioned Family, one of my yeah. favourite bands. We're all we're all fans yeah, of Family. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, you've got to look a little deeper. I think when you look a little bit deeper, you find Savoy Brown. It's not something that's going to be placed right in front of your face. In terms of your live shows, Kim, is it difficult sometimes to be consistent in achieving a, a consistent tone? Really, um, it's a, it's an ongoing battle. Uh, for sure, to keep a tone going, and I think again, I'm a, I'm very hard on myself. Um, a, a producer that was interested in producing the band, and and, and I'm hoping it is still in, yeah. in 
interested for the future said to me you know the one thing I've always had a consistent guitar tone and that was very nice to hear because I beat myself up about it you know and uh, uh, I uh, work on it all the time I'd say every day I've been in the studio this morning before this interview you know right. and practicing and you're constantly working on your guitar sound you constantly uh, want to be better yeah. uh, and uh, but I think it's one thing that's, that has been consistent, if I say so myself. Uh, and that's been the one consistent thing from Savoy Brown right from the beginning is the guitar has been, uh, you know, uh, pretty consistent throughout. And I think uh, that it's, it's led the band in many ways. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the, the glue that's kept the band together. Yeah. Now, sometimes I play better guitar than, than other times. Uh, when when I'm not playing good guitar, then it, the band doesn't have the glue, you know. When I'm really on top of my guitar playing, even today when we get rehearsals with Pat and Garnet, I have to be on form. I have to walk into that rehearsal studio, uh, you know, on best of form with guitar, because suddenly that gives everybody, you know, everybody knows then what it's all about. You know, this is it. You know, this is this is the energy. It's uh, and even yeah. Pat and Garnet, who, 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 who were great friends and known each other for years, you know, it, it's subliminal. If I walk in and I'm not caring about that guitar, subliminally the thing is not going anywhere. So, so if I say so myself, the guitar is the glue that's kept Savoy Brown. Okay, I'm going to play out with Rockin' in Louisiana which features some acoustic guitar and, well, Dobro. Um, uh, final question, really. You've cut five acoustic albums since 1997. Was that something that the younger Kim Simmons might not have been interested in? Yeah, you wouldn't have been interested in that at all. Uh, this, this, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> having said that, you know, what it, it wasn't like to be a solo career. It was an antidote to the band because oh. um, there's so many stresses and strains with a group, you know, with a band, you know, even when the current band, which is uh, just, you know, plain sailing. That, you, know, no. you still have to deal with promoters, you still have to deal with agents, you still have to do deal with travel. So I went into the acoustic uh, the solo side of things just as an antidote. Then I could do solo gigs with the acoustic guitar without the pressures of being Savoy Brown, you know, without all the logistics of running a band. So, uh, but it's true that when I, uh, you know, when I was younger, I, I wouldn't have been interested in folk blues or anything, but, uh, but I'm older now and I do like it. <laughs> okay, Kim, it's been, it's been actually a joy having you on the show. Thanks so much for doing this. But before you go, just give us your social media links so people can check out the album and what yeah, you're up to. The main thing is uh, SavoyBrown.com. That's where even we go to for the, the gigs because the gig is not for real yeah, unless yeah. it's the website, SavoyBrown.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook uh, site that a good friend of mine runs. It's fantastic. So, you know, yeah, if you go to SavoyBrown.com, you'll see the Twitter feed and the Facebook feed and you can go from there. Thanks so much again, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much, Pete. Thanks for listening, and good night. You've been listening to the Pete Feenstra feature, first broadcast on Sunday the 26th of July 2020, chatting to the legendary Kim Simmons from the blues rockers Savoy Brown, and that was ahead of the release of a brand new album in August 2020. And you can check out previous interviews 
via the dedicated page for Pete Feenstra and the Feature Show at our website, where you can catch up also with his Tuesday Rock and Blues Show, heading up a five-hour blues rock marathon, Tuesday is Blues Day. All happening at GetReadyToRockRadio.com From all of us here at Get Ready To Rock Radio, thank you for listening.